Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morris and Forster, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers. Hello, welcome to the Above Board Podcast. This is your host, Dave Lynn, and I'm a partner at Morrison Forster, and I practice in the areas of public company counseling and corporate governance. And I'm very pleased to be joined today by my colleague, Ed Imperator. Ed is a partner in Morrison Forster's Investigations and White Collar Defense Practice Group. Ed is a former assistant United States attorney for the Southern District of New York, and his practice involves representing companies, financial institutions, boards, and executives in internal and government investigations, as well as parallel regulatory and civil litigation. He has experience dealing with all aspects of white-collar crime, including securities and commodities fraud, accounting fraud, insider trading, market manipulation, corporate fraud, digital currency crime, cyber crime, and violations of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Ed, thank you so much for joining me here today. Thank you, Dave. I appreciate your having me. So in the terms of combating alleged securities and accounting violations, that really seems to be a priority for the government these days, uh, as it has been for a long time. What trends have you been seeing regarding the types of violations that are being brought against public companies? And are there any particular industries that seem to be targeted more than others? Yes. Uh, DOJ and, and the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, have touted a renewed focus on traditional forms of securities fraud. That would include things like insider trading and accounting and disclosure fraud involving publicly traded companies. And one industry that has seen an increasing amount of recent scrutiny is the life sciences and healthcare industry. In the last few months, we've seen a wave of new enforcement actions by both the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission involving public companies in these areas, especially early stage life sciences companies that are experiencing rapid growth. When I was an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, I handled a number of criminal prosecutions and trials involving insider trading and accounting fraud among publicly traded life sciences companies. In the two years that have passed since I left the government, I think the focus on the life sciences industry has only increased. And what do you think really accounts for that trend in terms of the focus on life sciences company? And is it something that's evident both at the DOJ and at the SEC? It is. And I, I think there are a couple of different factors that are at play here. First of all, there are certain types of, of facts or ingredients that tend to draw government scrutiny. They include things like the rapid growth of early stage companies and a focus on earnings growth or meeting earnings targets. Another is a significant amount of involvement in mergers or acquisitions. And third would be growth that is outpacing a, a company's internal controls. When any one of these things happens, there tends to be a, a significant regulatory focus. And another thing that is going on these days is that the SEC is increasingly focused on data analytics. And that means applying different types of data tools to publicly traded companies. One example of that is something the SEC calls their EPS or earnings per share initiative. SEC is very focused on allegations of earnings management by publicly traded companies. In other words, where companies are reaching their earnings targets quarter after quarter, especially uh, by slim margins. And second, uh, the SEC is focused uh, on what they call their data-driven initiative to look at suspicious trading patterns. 
That could be uh, looking at trading activity shortly before or after earnings announcements, uh, trading around uh, acquisition announcements or important product developments. And the SEC is increasingly looking not only at small snapshots in time, but also on trading patterns over months or even years. And in recent months, we've seen a number of enforcement actions that are that have been brought, including in the life sciences industry, based on these types of data analytics. And when the SEC becomes focused as it is in the life sciences industry, that in turn draws DOJ scrutiny as well. Uh, and the reason for that is that DOJ investigations are primarily based on referrals from the Securities and Exchange Commission. The vast majority of quality securities fraud matters that are prosecuted, for example, by the Southern District of New York originate with an SEC investigation. The SEC starts investigating, they see conduct that they view as potentially criminal in nature, and they make a referral to the Department of Justice and the two agencies essentially work together to investigate the matter. So when SEC through data analytics becomes uh, interested, for example, in the life sciences industry, that will lend itself to uh, DOJ scrutiny as well. And on the insider trading front, what types of theories are you seeing relating to insider trading when it comes to life sciences companies? So at a high level, I think we're seeing two basic themes. One is we're seeing the government return to their traditional bread and butter theories, for example, the misappropriation theory of insider trading and applying that in new scenarios. And then we're also seeing the SEC in particular uh, advancing new and more aggressive theories. So let me give some examples that have arisen recently in the life sciences industry. First, we've seen a major focus by both the SEC and the DOJ around Rule 10b-51 plans. Rule 10b-51 uh, is a vehicle or a tool that allows an employee or an executive to place trades in his or her company pursuant to a, a trading plan. And uh, it provides an affirmative defense for an executive. If an executive uh, puts a plan in place at a time when he or she is not in possession of material non-public information, uh, the trade can go forward even at a time when the executive may be in possession of material non-public information. In other words, there's an affirmative defense that applies when the plan is established at a time when the trader is not in possession of material non-public information. However, the SEC has been very open and public in uh, articulating abuses it has seen in the way Rule 10b-51 plans have been used. Uh, Dave, I know you've written and spoken a lot about the rule changes that have happened regarding Rule 10b-51, um, and there have also been a number of enforcement developments as well. The SEC has brought two cases uh, involving, two insider trading cases involving the life sciences industry based on trades placed pursuant to Rule 10b-51 plans. And those cases have been, come as a surprise, I think, to some legal observers, but the SEC has stated that what really matters in the way that it's conducting and investigating trading activity is what was in the head of the trader of, in this case, the executive or the employee at the time that he or she established the Rule 10b-51 plan? Did he have material non-public information uh, at his disposal at the time that the plan was established? That really is the dispositive question when it comes to looking at Rule 10b-51 trading activity. 
Uh, and one of the recent cases that we've seen, uh, which is SEC versus Terrence Pizer, was also accompanied by a parallel DOJ prosecution. This was the first time there has been a DOJ prosecution based entirely on trading that was placed around a Rule 10b-5-1 plan. So that was a noteworthy development. It arose in the context of a publicly traded life sciences company, and DOJ has been outspoken in saying that there will be additional actions uh, along the same lines. Another example of a case that has been brought recently uh, are the application of the misappropriation theory to a hybrid or remote working world. An example of this is uh, the a Southern District of New York case, United States versus Markin and Wong, which was paired with an SEC enforcement action. In that case, uh, an individual training to be an FBI agent uh, lived with his girlfriend, and his girlfriend happened to be an associate at a large law firm. She was working on a transaction that involved uh, confidential business information relating to a tender offer that was uh, being made by a large life sciences company. And according to the government's allegations, uh, the FBI trainee misappropriated information unbeknownst to his girlfriend. He, he took information from her computer, he overheard her on conference calls, and he read confidential hard copy documents that she had with her. And in that way, he allegedly learned about uh, a tender offer before it was made public and, and tipped others so that they could trade uh, in the company's securities. Uh, and so that involves a very uh, uh, traditional theory of insider trading, in other words, uh, misappropriation. In that case, it was uh, a breach of a fiduciary duty that was owed between a boyfriend and a girlfriend. Um, but it was applied in a new setting to the, the hybrid working world. And so what that case, I think, underscores, and we've seen other cases like it, is that it is very important for, for publicly traded companies to have internal controls in place that take into account how people are, are working in a remote working world and ensuring that confidential information is going to remain confidential. And then finally, there has been another uh, development uh, on the SEC side in terms of advancing a new theory, uh, and again, one that has been applied in the life sciences industry. In SEC versus Panawat, uh, the defendant was an, an employee or an executive at a publicly traded life sciences company. We'll call it Company A. The executive learned that his company, Company A, was about to be acquired by another publicly traded uh, life sciences company. He did not buy or sell shares in those companies. Instead, out, he went out and he bought call options in a close competitor of company A. We'll call it company B. Uh, he made money through that trading activity and he was sued by the SEC for insider trading. The SEC's theory, which is I think is, is, is noteworthy, uh, was that the defendant's conduct was prohibited by the written insider trading policy of his own company, Company A. Company A's insider trading policy prohibited uh, the defendant from buying or selling the securities of any company based on confidential information that he learned from Company A. And the SEC also alleged that it was reasonable to infer that the stock price of Company B would go up once the acquisition of Company A was announced. In other words, Company B was one of the few remaining uh, publicly traded mid-cap life sciences companies still available for, for an acquisition after Company A was acquired. Um, so 
this is a case that has drawn a lot of scrutiny. But the important point is the case underscores, first of all, the SEC's focus on the life sciences industry. And it also underscores how important it is for companies to have up-to-date insider trading policies that reflect not only uh, rule changes and regulatory developments, but also uh, recent enforcement actions. And what sort of theories are you seeing the government advance relating to accounting and disclosure fraud? So I think we're seeing two main types of theories, uh, both from the SEC and from DOJ. The first is a major focus on earnings management, and that is using the, the EPS initiative that I mentioned a moment ago. The SEC is looking at data analytics to review uh, what they call earnings management practices. The SEC is looking in particular at top line revenue and earnings per share, especially when a company is reaching its guidance or consensus many months in a row by a small amount. So in other words, the SEC is looking at small adjustments that are being made to reach an earnings target. Uh, that is, to use the, the legal term, that is qualitative materiality. It's something that would be important to investors uh, in evaluating company performance. The SEC is not looking so much at major or dramatic increases in earnings. And a case where this has arisen is an SEC case called SEC versus American Renal Associates, which involves the healthcare industry. The SEC alleged in that case that a publicly traded uh, company uh, made improper adjustments, which were called topside adjustments to their revenue in the period after quarter close in order to reach their, uh, their target revenue based on estimated payments that the company expected to receive from insurers. And we've also seen similar cases uh, that are happening in parallel with DOJ actions. So that's one theory, earnings management. And then secondly, the government is also focused on allegations of misstatements to auditors and internal accountants. Uh, there is actually a little known statute under the Sarbanes-Oxley Act that makes it a crime for a company uh, or any individuals at a company to um, in fraudulently influence or make misstatements either to an internal accountant at the company or to an outside auditor in any matter that would be important to the accountant or the auditor in conducting a review or an annual audit. And this is a very attractive theory uh, to the government because it allows the government to build an accounting fraud case without ever identifying a material misstatement to the market or an inflation of an earnings metric. It is sufficient to show that information was manipulated or a misstatement was made to an accountant or an auditor in a matter that would have been important to them in conducting their review or their audit. So to make these types of cases, the government is increasingly focused on the flow of information from senior business executives to either accountants or auditors, for example, on management representation letters, Sarbanes-Oxley certifications, and discussions of, of uh, transactions and product-related information. So these are two of the types of theories that we're increasingly seeing, especially in the, in the world of life sciences companies. What are some of the things that public life sciences companies could do to mitigate the potential risks of these types of issues arising and reducing the likelihood of a government investigation or a regulatory inquiry? 
I think companies really need to uh, enhance their internal controls. And what that means is having not only up-to-date policies in place, but having policies with teeth. In other words, policies that are, uh, are carried out in practice using appropriate procedures in a way that is supported by training and enforcement. So in the world of insider trading, uh, it's, it's very important for companies to have insider trading policies in place that reflect the latest developments in the law. And in fact, uh, we have been advising publicly traded uh, companies, including in the life sciences industry, how they can revise their insider trading policies to reflect, for example, the Panawat decision that I mentioned a moment ago. It's also important for companies to have in place policies that apply to third parties with whom they do business. For example, consultants or contractors, and, and to ensure that both the company's own employees as well as any third parties are fully aware of the company's insider trading policy, that they are trained on it, that they sign certifications, uh, that they will comply with it, uh, and that the company, when it detects potential violations, will, will actually enforce them and document them. Similarly, uh, when it comes to accounting and disclosure fraud, it's critically important for publicly traded companies to have procedures in place that are documented for making discretionary accounting adjustments, for demonstrating how those adjustments are actually made, and ensuring that there is a, a complete and well-documented flow of information uh, from the business people at the company, from management to both internal accountants and outside auditors. And when a company is, is conducting due diligence for a potential merger or acquisition, it's equally important to conduct due diligence in these areas. Uh, when a company is considering combining or acquiring another public company, they should ensure uh, that the company has in place uh, written procedures uh, and uh, enforcement tools that are going to mitigate the types of risks that we've been discussing. Great. Thank you, Ed, for sharing all of those insights today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. I appreciate your having me today. Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about what you heard today or would like more information on this topic, please visit mofo.com slash podcasts. Again, that's mofo, M-O-F-O dot com slash podcasts.